Every day is Clabsy Day at Boston. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Small Talk, our podcast where we like to explore the Boston Children's Hospital community through conversation with our interprofessional colleagues. And today, we have our special guests, Jen Ormsby and Paula Conrad, and they are here to join us to talk about central line-associated bloodstream infections. So I'd like to let them introduce themselves for a moment. Jen, you want to start? Sure. So my name is Jen Ormsby. I'm the Senior Director of Infection Prevention and Control here at Boston Children's Hospital. My background is nursing. I did bedside for a very long time in surgical programs where I fell in love with infections and collapse prevention. And I'm also a nurse practitioner and see patients in primary care now. Hand it off to you, Paula. Thanks. I'm Paula Conrad. I'm an infection preventionist with Infection Prevention and Control. I'm newly took the role of infection control manager as well. I am also a nurse by training. I've worked at Children's for many, many years, mostly in the medicine patient services and critical care areas, most recently in the MICU. When I worked in the MICU, I was the unit-based infection prevention nurse and worked closely with Jen when she was in the Department of Infection Control. And then in 2019, transitioned over to IPC full-time. And I do a lot of work with Jen and the rest of our team on Clabsy. Wonderful. Thank you both so much for joining us today. So let's jump on in. Can you tell us what is Clabsy? Why don't we start there? So Clabsy. We use this term so frequently and hardly ever tell people what it is. So uh, this will be interesting, but it's a central line associated bloodstream infection. It happens because a child or patient has an invasive device, a central line in their body and organisms can attach to it. And then a child or patient will get infected. There's many types of central lines including permanent central lines and temporary central lines. The temporary ones are PICs or IJs that are placed in the OR or in the ICU. And then there's permanent central lines that we refer to a lot as Broviac or Hickman or implanted ports, portacaths, those types of lines. So any of those lines can become infected either because of normal skin flora that a person has, or we introduce the bacteria due to, you know, lack of hand hygiene, not cleaning the needleless connector for the right amount of time, dropping things on the floor and things like that. So there's many ways that those central lines can get infected. Some of it, we don't even know how it happens. We believe that some of it's probably due to colonization within a person's own normal flora that with under cer certain circumstances, pressure on the body, stress on the body, the colonization becomes an infection. So there's still a lot to learn about the root cause of CLABSI or central line associated bloodstream infections. And there's many ways you can get them. I don't know, Paula, do you have anything to add to that? No, I think that's a great summary. And a lot of the work that we do is focused on our Clabsy maintenance bundle because the thinking is that a lot of these infections can be prevented with using, you know, certain practices and techniques with insertion of the line and with the daily care of the line. Right. And those practices are evidence-based 
so much research has been done on these specific interventions to prevent CLABC. And there's probably more things we could do, but we like to focus on the ones that have the most evidence to prevent these infections. So Jen, you mentioned that patients who end up with CLABC are patients with invasive devices. Are there any other patient populations that we should be especially watchful to make sure or that are at higher risk for these infections than others? Yeah, there is published evidence on high-risk populations. For us, it's mostly those that are in an ICU setting, as well as the hemon population, solid organ transplant population. Those are the biggest risk. The ICU patients, they just have a lot of things going on with them. We go into those lines a lot, as well as their immune system is under you know, stress and duress due to whatever reason they're in the ICU. So that's the cause for that. Of course, the hemon population, a lot of them are neutropenic. Um, their immune systems are down, which is part of their treatment course. And then the solid organ transplant, everybody knows, is on, they're on medications that suppress their immune system as well. So that puts them at higher risk. Are there any tools or other resources that we can use to help score any of these patients? such as like a sepsis score, something like that? We don't really have a tool to score patients like a CHOOSE or a sepsis score, but we did this past year do a, a project trying to identify patients that have additional risk factors on top of the ones that Jen mentioned. We looked at the literature for clues there. We also looked at our internal root cause analysis data from our own CLABSIs. We ended up doing a case control comparison of patients who have central lines, those who got CLABSIs during a certain time period, and those who did not. And we did identify a few things in our BCH patients during that time period that seemed to make them at a little higher risk for CLABSI. So we, we have called those out and developed a tool for the bedside nurses to use to identify those patients and some strategies that they can use to prevent CLABSI if the patient has any of those risk factors. And Thosley, you mentioned the CLABSI prevention, the maintenance bundle. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. So the CLABSI maintenance bundle, as Jen mentioned, is a bundle of evidence-based practices that are widely used and accepted you know, across the healthcare environment. Um, our peer institutions use the same type of bundle elements. And basically, there is an insertion bundle. So it's a certain set of practices that you should do every time you're inserting a central line. And that's focused mostly on providers that are placing lines, but also bedside nurses who might be assisting in those line placements, like in the ICUs. And then the maintenance practices are those day-to-day -day activities that the nurse um, engages in when she's using, he or she is using the line. So scrubbing the needleless connector for at least 15 seconds, using friction with alcohol, changing our central line dressings every seven days or more frequently if they're loose or soiled. And then there's also an interprofessional piece of, you know, the team discussing the need for the line every day during rounds, not just discussing that the patient has a line, which is important, but we would like them to really have a conversation about why they're using the line each day. 
you know, are there any opportunities to use that line a little bit less frequently by changing medications from IV to enteral um, or changing the lab plan to a little less frequent among many other suggestions. And if someone wanted to find this bundle, where would it be located? We do have the bundle on our infection prevention and control website. And there are also posters that were made and are displayed in various areas of the hospital. It's also part of our CVC maintenance policies. <laughs> you can find this information in the policy. And I, in talking about it, I did not go over every single bundle element. So there are other really important ones that you know, we would maybe circle back to as we talk. Mm-hmm. I would say too, I'm going back to the risk factors because you spoke about the risk factors that we identified in that body of work, but I think highlighting those are also really important. Um, and I'm probably going to get them wrong because Paul is the expert and been talking about them all the time, but I'll try. So having a central line in for greater than 21 days, as well as getting TPN, that, that combination puts patients at higher risk. Um, we know that the lipid-based solutions that are part of TPN, um, you have to change the needleless connector more often, and that we think that that plays a part in that combination. And those kids that have central lines in for greater than 21 days, that's like their lifeline, right? So that obviously puts them at higher risk. If the patient has more than two enteral devices, so a G-tube and a J-tube or a G-tube and an ostomy, not just one, but both um, puts them at higher risk. And I think that really plays into our patient population. A lot of our kids are less than four. We do believe that kids less than four are at higher risk as well. And there's less surface area. So those enteral devices, the ostomy, the G-tube and the central line are all really close to one another and can lead to contamination if we're not doing hand hygiene and all that. The other risk factor is when the line is being used for both medication administration and venous sampling. So using it throughout the day for meds and labs, um, there seemed to be more likelihood of CLABSI when patients were having the line used for multiple purposes. So that's why a lot of the conversation focuses on, you know, changing those meds over to enteral, you know, coming up with other alternatives for labs, including peripheral sticks, heel sticks, et cetera. And most recently, there is a concern for a rise in the CLABSI rate. What are your thoughts on that as to why that might be happening? We could both talk about this all day long. I will give my opinion first and then Paula, you can jump in. Uh, I think it's definitely multifactorial. I think that for the last three years, we've been in a pandemic. Healthcare workers are tired. They're burnt out. We've had to hire a lot of new staff due to moving into hail. We have a lot of travelers. I think that population of nurses are getting their feet wet still, and they're still learning all the ways that we can prevent all sorts of safety events for their patients, including CLABSI, but they just have a lot on their plate. And so I think that the newer nurses, the travelers definitely play a part. Some of the units have 40 to 70%, right, of new staff or uh, travelers and new staff that have been here less than a year. So that definitely is a factor. We've had 
multiple recalls on products uh, in which we've had to switch out products or run out of supplies and products. I would highlight heparin being one of them. We've had to go to conservation strategies to not flush central lines with heparin that are larger. And so that could potentially be playing a part of the CLABSI rate. We've had to switch our filters multiple times. We've trialed multiple bifuses and trifuses. We all know in, our, in the last couple months, we had a product that was disconnecting or pulling apart very easily or too easily. And that was identified by our NICU and we had we pulled that product completely and replaced it with an alternative bifuse trifuse device. We believe that that definitely played a part. The rationale on that is potentially there was a glue that was holding two pieces together and it was falling apart really easily. And I think that when staff were manipulating the tubing, holding the tubing, the tubing was sitting in the bed, potentially organisms got in that part of the tubing because the seal wasn't tight enough. And then there's been other product issues with alcohol, different alcohol pads, dry pads, wet pads, you know, people complain about the pads not being wet enough, which we love because that means they're really paying attention to detail and scrumming their hubs. So those are the main factors that I think of the supplies and the people. New environment, I think definitely plays a factor with the new hail building opening. When a new building opens, the environment is different. Where the supplies are, people have to go further. They maybe can't find the supplies. Where's the hand sanitizer? All those things are hard for the staff and I think play a role in distracting the staff sometimes. And maybe they just can't get the products they need. So I, we've focused a lot on hand hygiene and getting more Purell alcohol-based hand sanitizer everywhere. So I think that our hand hygiene reliability plummeted right around the time that we had an increase in CLABSI. Right now, the hand hygiene reliability is the lowest we've seen it in at least three years. That definitely is playing into our overall infection rate, I believe. Uh, what did I miss, Paula? I think you've covered everything. I would just add with hand hygiene, a lot of our hand hygiene audits are obtained, you know, entering and exiting the room. And as Jen said, those numbers are really low. But we've also had the opportunity to do some observations of, you know, care happening inside the room. We have a lot of patients on transmission-based precautions. So that means the nurses in the room with gown and gloves on. And there's definitely an opportunity to improve, you know, taking off gloves, doing hand hygiene and putting on new gloves in between sort of dirty or, you know, less clean activities such as, you know, checking your kid's diaper or charting at the computer or, um, you know, various other activities between that and accessing the central line. So we'd really like to, um, you know, have people be thoughtful about moving from one activity to the next inside the room as well in terms of making sure they have pristinely clean hands before doing anything related to their central line. I think that speaks to the cleaning of the high-touch surfaces in the room. Yeah, so it's generally the nurse's responsibility once per shift to clean high-touch surfaces, which are like the keyboard, the computer on wheels, the bedside rails those types of items with an oxybear wipe disinfectant. And again, like with a change in environment, you might not have the oxybear wipes readily available where they store it, oh, they're stored outside. 
up the room in a cabinet. They got to open the cabinet. Just all those additional steps and those human factor pieces make it harder for people to do what they really want to do. They want to do what's right. It's just our environment is not always set up to allow for that. I would add too that there's a lot of distractions. So, you know, when you're in the room taking care of your patient, there's, you know, a parent with many, many questions. There are consulting services coming in and out to see your patient. There might be a sibling running around underfoot because we're family centered and we are collaborative and there's a lot going on in the room and it's a lot of inputs and breaks your concentration and can lead to small lapses that you would otherwise not be subject to if you had a moment to sort of process your next step. I have to say, I love the CLAPSI um, prevention maintenance bundle that you all pulled together, especially in this era where we have a lot of travelers and we are doing a lot of our orientations, as you all know, is pretty fast. So this has been extremely helpful to have this tool to go over and provide to them. The one question I do have is I was reading through the maintenance bundle talking about like a clean environment. Are there recommendations for changing linen practice for that any different than any of our other patients? So it's not evidence-based. I'll say that some institutions, that's the standard of care is that if you have invasive devices like a central line, they recommend changing the linen daily. When I think about when I started nursing, that was the standard of care, right? We always just changed the linen daily. That was everybody got bathed daily and the linen was changed daily. But I do think that now it's hard to get that done. There's so many more competing demands that kids are sicker. We don't want to disturb them. And I do think that the linens probably don't get changed every day, but it is not evidence-based. There's no good research with that single factor that it will decrease the clavsy rate. So thanks. That's good to know. I know the the big push we have on our unit is the CHG treatment, the bath, and it's right up there at the top with what the expectations are that's going to get down one way or the other. I'm so glad you mentioned that because when I reviewed the bundle elements earlier in our chat, I did not highlight that. And that is one of our most important elements. And it is one of the areas that we have the most opportunity for improvement. (laughs) You know, it's challenging to get that done every day. It's sometimes challenging for nurses from one shift to the next to um, recall, you know, whether it was done or when it was done and just using handoff and different tools at the bedside to make sure everybody knows that it's due or it's been finished. You know, we still work on that a lot every day. And I have to say too, in the emergency department, we're trying to get people to remember to do the baths too, especially patients who are headed to the OR. So that's also a change for us as well. So we're trying to keep up with that too. Yeah, historically and in the literature, it just gets so deprioritized for nurses. They're focused on event or the meds they have to give and giving the bath just is not as important. And what we're really trying to highlight, we used to call it a bath all the time. And then we changed the terminology to a CHG or chlorhexane treatment to make it sound more important and informal. And so we hoped that that would help. I would say that a lot of people, I don't think, don't understand why it's so important. I mean, when you do a CHG treatment, like you're removing the organisms and flora that are on your skin that are on your hands, and then you touch your central line or someone touches their leg or their clothes and then touches their central line. And if you don't clean with an 
alcohol scrub with a lot of friction for the time period that we need it to be scrubbed, then whatever is in your environment on your skin can then get into your central line. And so that's the point of the bath or the CHG treatment that I'm supposed to call it, so that we prevent those organisms from getting into the central line. So I wanted to say that, Jen and Paula, the really what you're describing is the perfect storm with changes with our supply chain, with our personnel, with our environment. Like I said, it really is a perfect storm setting us up for collapse, right, and our vulnerabilities there. I want to take a minute to think historically back in, I think it was 2016 or so, it was an enterprise-wide effort to standardize our central line care and maintenance. Do you guys remember that? If we can think back to the lessons that we learned back then, and do you think anything would be pertinent to help us out now? Yeah, I was heavily involved in that policy revision, which was so fun. Yes, I remember that time where we standardized our practices and policies, and we made a lot of changes to central line care at that time um, across ICU and non-ICU settings where there had been a lot of differences between those two places. Lessons learned. I think that the uh, re-demo of how to change a needleless connector was really important. So we remember that get on the train, the Clabsy train was the push at that time. And um, kudos to Ashley for putting that together. But marketing strategy. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely helped. I think, you know, it was spaced learning, which I think is important. And there was some re-demo as well as some computer-based learning. And we reflected on that as a group and we are planning on implementing something like that come the new year, fiscal year 23, whether it's for just individual units that have an elevated rate or all of inpatient settings that is yet to be determined. But I think having a catchphrase was a great learning. I think having CEI involvement with infection prevention and control was a good learning. And we've been really leaning on CEI to help us with this body of work in the last few months. And then the policy is being reviewed as well. So they're currently looking at all the evidence and seeing if there needs to be any updates. So that is also happening concurrently. I don't know what else. Did you think of anything else that we learned from that? I was in the bedside realm at that point. I was still working in the MICU, and I think it just brought CLABSI prevention back front and center for people and, you know, moved it to the top of the priority list. So, you know, I think in addition to the demo and the, you know, updates and learning, it was just a re-emphasis on the importance of the issue. Really just back to basics once again. It seems to always come back to that, right? And uh, back to basics, we don't implement some massive change to solve the problem. It's just bringing it back to the front line and really listening to the staff to see if there's anything new we can implement. But mm-hmm. even this time around, we did a fishbone, we've talked to staff, we've done observations, we've looked at our data, and not one thing is jumping out at us as the cause mm-hmm. of this increase in our collapse rate. K-cards are a type of audit tool that we do. The infection preventionist partners with a unit leader and goes to the bedside and talks to the bedside nurse to review the maintenance bundle. So as Paula discussed, the different elements, it's supposed to be an interaction 
between the nurse and the infection preventionist and unit leader that's rounding together. We ask a series of questions. If that something is identified as an opportunity, we're able to do education in real time. It usually stimulates further discussion about other elements or other things going on with the patient. And it's just a great way to connect to the bedside nurse and to do real-time education. It's based on a Lean Six Sigma tool. It was adopted from the Toyota Success, but it's basically a standardized series of questions that you can tailor to whatever your individual need is to improve a system to make it more reliable. And so what we're trying to do is make the maintenance bundle 100% reliable for every patient every day, every time. And so we go there, we talk to the people. After we revised the policy, we implemented the K cards for CLABSI prevention for the maintenance bundle. And there was a significant decrease in our CLABSI rate at that time likely due to the standardization with the updated policy, the education that was done, as well as the reinforcement that the K-card audits provided. And now we're just seeing, you know, during COVID, we continued the K-cards at a decreased frequency because we were limiting staff on the unit, et cetera, et cetera. And now we're back doing them all the time. But I think potentially that gap in the K cards could factor in our, into our increase in CLABSI as well. It's really hard to say. There's been a national increase in CLABSI, and we thought we were lucky that we, it wasn't affecting us. You know, data came out last year, and everybody was like 40% up, and we were like, oh, we're fine, we're stable. I don't know, it's good. And now we're seeing it. So I, it's hard to pinpoint what exactly. Um, is the cause, but the K cards are great. I love the K cards. I don't know, Paula, do you have anything to add to that? I also think it's a great opportunity to just talk through issues and concerns. I did K cards on one of my units last week and it was very conversational. And we identified this patient who he had an implanted port and a pick and the port had been de-accessed and they were just using the pick, and now they really didn't need the pick anymore, but they needed something. So we were like, well, okay, maybe you only need one lumen now. Take the pick out and reaccess the port if the port is is needed. So it was it was really just through organic conversation that the nurse had that sort of light bulb moment of, oh, right, the port. I haven't thought about the port because it's been deaccessed but we can use that if we need it. And he probably wasn't even going to need it. So I do think that the in-person conversation just lends itself to problem solving in a way that simply doing a chart audit doesn't give you. I love the way you describe how the K cards actually help to tailor the, the specific care of the patient. Absolutely, for that one patient only. And it fostered a conversation with the nurse to help problem solve. I really like that idea. I want to do it in the ER. No, it's all oh, we've been wanting to implement them in the ER. So that would be great. I'll say there's so many experiences like that. When we, we wrote up this experience with K-Cards and we um, described both like our quantitative results and our qualitative results. And the qualitative results were like more fascinating to me than even the quantitative. Of course, we saw a decrease in our rate, but the qualitative like products were switched families were more engaged. 
we were talking about the parents like fake long nails and how that could you know potentially cause harm to the patient and we were able to do some parent education tpa use is another big one because we ask like how has the line been used in the last 24 hours and if they say tpa we can say oh how many doses of tpa have you had in the last you know week or so and you can see pattern you know drive patterns and change oh you've had three doses of tpa in the last 48 hours there's probably something going on with that line so are you using the right amount of tpa do we need imaging of that line to see if there's a clot is there a fibrin sheath? Do we need to flush more? All those little things can be identified just by asking some simple questions and engaging with the staff that are touching those lines all the time. The other thing I've noticed is, particularly on some of the units, not, not the ICUs, the ICUs have a very strong nursing um, role during rounds, but on a lot of the other units, inpatient units, rounding happens and the nurse isn't you know, included, she's busy, he or she is busy, or the the team just rounds without pulling the nurse in. And I think the conversation in K cards can provide an opportunity for the nurse to talk through some of the things that would have been brought up on rounds. And then he or she can go back to the team and say, oh, you know, we just had this conversation about maybe considering pulling the line or considering changing something from IV to enteral. So you know, that conversation piece that might not be happening every single day for the nurse, you know, can sometimes be accomplished through the K-card. Mm-hmm. Are the families included in the conversations with the K-cards? No. When I was doing K-cards, I wouldn't not, I wouldn't like step out of the room to have the conversation. You can have the conversation in the room, um, but they are not included in the questioning. We go back and forth on this because some institutions do involve their families in this auditing or education in a more formalized way. But we went to the patient advisory board and some of the parents there felt like, I have enough stress on my plate. I have enough things to worry about. I don't want to have to worry about taking care of that central line too. So we didn't really get buy-in so far to engage them in the K cards. But again, we don't step out to have um, the discussion. And I do know that the oncology program has piloted asking the parents about the CHG treatment and having real-time education with the parent on the importance. It's a bundle element, et cetera. And they did have some success with that. Engaging the parents, especially in the CHG treatment, because the parent can do the CHG treatment mm-hmm. uh, for their child. And that does help. That is kind of normal, right? Bathing your child, you do that all the time at home. So that is a normal activity. Telling a nurse not to touch a line because they haven't washed their hands or they haven't scrubbed for 15 seconds probably doesn't feel as comfortable for a parent to speak up about. That makes a lot of sense. I understand what you said about enough on the plates for the families. So if any of our listeners are looking to help educate our families on the CLABC and the the bundles, are there any resources for the nurses or for the staff to share with the families? Absolutely. We have a very huge library of family education sheets on a variety of topics, including central lines, especially if they need to do any care at home. I know there are some great videos that have been produced over the years as well. 
if um, you have more of a visual learner. And um, I think just, you know, having conversations, explaining why you're doing certain practices as you're providing care, making sure the parent understands the need for the CHG treatment and why it's done. Um, so a, a bunch of different options. You know, hopefully we can get parents where they need to be in terms of being part of the conversation without putting too much stress on them in terms of monitoring everything. Yeah, the Get Well Network also has some information um, on CLADSI prevention and central line care for parents if they're interested in as well. How do you position our education over, say, an external visiting nurse? We've had some families come in that say that the visiting nurses clean things differently and care for the lines differently. Do you have insight to that? Well, I think one effort was through the standardization of the CVC policy, at least for patients that are going from one unit to the next in the hospital. We wanted patients and families to have the same care and the same experiences, whether they were on Nine East or the CICU or in the ED, as well as, you know, in ambulatory clinics and infusion clinics and so forth. I think with visiting nurses that are not employed by the hospital, there are definitely challenges because they are, you know, not our employees. And then there are differences in products that happen between um, what we have here at the hospital and what home care companies and insurance companies are able to provide at home. So I think it's probably a matter of explaining that to parents when that is the case and making sure they understand that there might be a slight product difference, but you can still provide the same excellent care to your line in a variety of settings. I would add a couple things. I know that when case management identifies an infusion company to take care of a central line at home, that our education materials are shared with that company. Do they always follow them? I don't know. But that information is provided by our case management to those companies. And then additionally, our any parent that's going home with a child with a central line receives education from our staff following our policies, our flushing, our cap changes, our dressing changes. All of that is included in the discharge instructions with our policies. So that's how we try to get the information to be the same in the home as it is in the hospital, but it's true. The products are a real problem or a driver of differences. They can't get the same dressings. They can't get gloves at home sometimes. They can't get the same needleless connectors or the alcohol impregnated caps. So um, teaching families that, you know, check with your provider or your nurse practitioner or your clinical nurse specialist or nurse in your clinic if you see a different product, but most likely it is safe for your child to use that product. I think the only thing that is hard is the dressings at home. The quality of the dressings are really different and kids respond, their skin responds differently to dressing. And even if a dressing is lifting up just a little bit, you're not supposed to reinforce it. You're supposed to change the whole thing. So keeping those dressings occlusive are really important for prevention in the home when the kids are running around and sweating and playing sports and going swimming and showering every day and it's much harder at home with the central line dressings. And they might be limited in how many dressing kits they're given for a month. So they can't just go to the supply room and grab three more dressing kits. They have to be really careful with what they have for supplies. 
Can you also talk about the journey of a patient with Clabsy here in the hospital and, and maybe the financial impact on both the hospital and the patient? Sure. I can talk about the journey. Maybe Jen can talk about the financials. So a patient with a Clabsy ends up having a complete change in their trajectory sometimes. They might be close to being ready to go home, you know, weaning off of sedation, weaning off of IV medications, and they get that Clabsy, and then they are now staying for, you know, up to an additional 10, 12, 14 days for antibiotics. They might have to go back to the operating room to have that infected line removed or have a new line placed. So they're being subjected to additional procedures. They're staying in the hospital longer. They're being exposed to additional antibiotics, which of course leads to concerns, you know, globally in terms of, you know, antibiotic resistance. So it can really upset their entire course and set them back significantly. And, you know, worst case scenario, obviously, you know, patients can get very, very sick and septic and have bad outcomes. Yeah, I would add just that the average increased length of stay is 21 days or something like that. So if you get a CLABSI during your hospital stay, you're extending your length of stay and that affects the whole family, right? It affects the patient definitely, but there's typically siblings and parents that have to stay out of work longer or they need to coordinate who's going to be in the hospital and who's going to be home if there's other kids at home. So it affects the patient, but it also affects the whole family. And I think also I need to highlight that getting a new line is not what we want. You only have so many veins in your body that you can place central lines. And for those kids that have lifelines that are on like home TPN, those lines keep them alive and they only can have so many of them before they just run out of access. I mean, we have kids with central lines in their backs because we going into their livers because we just had nowhere else to put them. And that's a real thing. So we need to prevent every infection and keep those lines in as long as possible, especially for those kids that really need it to keep them alive for their nutrition. The financial impact, obviously each CLABSI, the cost is somewhere between like 45,000 to 78,000. That's what's quoted in the literature. There is really a huge range because it really depends on how, how long the patient has to stay on top of what they were supposed to have for a length of stay. So that's really variable and it's variable if they're in an ICU or a non-ICU setting, the co that cost. I'll say that there is some, you know, reimbursement cost or penalty for these children that get infected as well. So depending on what insurance a patient has, we will submit the billing right to the insurance and the insurance can say, no, I'm not going to pay that because you caused that infection. You Boston Children's Hospital caused that infection. And then we as an organization lose some money there too. That obviously is not the main driver of why we want to prevent CLABSI. I mean, we want to prevent CLABSI for the kids and the families and their overall health, but there are, you know, financial impacts for the hospital as well. The impact for a CLABSI for a pediatric patient is just incredible. And I thank you for bringing these elements to the forefront so that we really recognize how big this impact is, not only, like you said, for the patient and family, but for the hospital as well. So I would 
say, if you could think of one take-home message for our listeners regarding CLABSI, what would that message be? That's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> one take-home message about CLABSI. All right, you can make it two if you want. No, no. I really think the one thing that I want people to do and know is that scrubbing your needless connector with alcohol with friction for 15 at least 15 seconds is the most important thing you do with each line entry and i think we get so used to doing it because it's such a normal part of our job is to scrub needleless connectors and hang meds and whatever that we forget the importance because those organisms live on that needleless connector because of the environment it's a healthcare environment and if we don't get them off before we attach that tubing, attach that syringe, we're flushing bacteria into the child. And we definitely can prevent those infections. Some of these infections, I don't know if we can really prevent. You know, Some of them, I think, come from the internal source of the child, either respiratory or GI. But some of them, we really can prevent. And when we put all of the focus on CLABSI, like we have years past, we really are able to bring down our rate. So I do think we can prevent the majority of our CLABSIs in our population. And I can't help but think, again, it's back to basics, right? Scrubbing the hub. Yeah. I think since Jen took scrubbing the hub, which was definitely top of mind when you posed the question, I will say scrub your hands, hand hygiene with Purell, using proper hand hygiene technique, you know, soap and water under other circumstances that is readily available in our hand hygiene policy, but clean your hands before coming into contact with the patient and with the patient's central line. So scrub the hub and clean your hands. Perfect. Paula, where do you think that people miss the most in cleaning their hands? I think probably, like you mentioned earlier, touching the patient environment, bed rails, silencing monitors, charting quickly, like things in the environment, directly in the environment, they're touching and then they're going right to the central line without, you know, because it's just part of their workflow would probably be my guess. You could start a central line mindfulness campaign. Yes, yes, for sure. Yeah, I think people think when they put on gloves, they're like in a sterile environment all of a sudden or something like that. And it's not true. No. We do like glow germ tests in the rooms, like there's stuff in there. There's yeah, and those, those gloves. As soon as you put them on, they're covered in whatever is around the patient. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I ended up you guys from from a personal thing, which I may or may not have shared in the past. So, as a kid, I actually got septic because of a line infection. So, technically, this may not have ever happened. This podcast, if they didn't. Uh, make their changes quick. But I asked the question in regards financially because it affected my family significantly because it was the length of stay. It was, I was at the Mayo. So it was, it was, a, it was a lot of money on our end. Wow. We're so yeah. lucky that you came through and we have you. Right? I'm not saying yes. I feel bad, but, no, 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 no. I would. but this one really is like one of those things where you like, you see the families go through this and it's like, it was unexpected. And next thing you know, you're Kate, that's actually a great message for staff because when you think about how we act and how like both Jen and Paul have pointed out like the scrubbing, you know, slowing down for 15 seconds, you want to treat that line and every time you access it as if it's going into your body as someone that you love's body. Yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah, definitely. I do think the patient experience and those personal stories like really hit home. I mean, we kind of get numb to it that it's just something that happens in the hospital, eclabsy. It doesn't have to happen. It doesn't have to happen if we just slow down a little bit, but it's hard to do. And it's a culture change, right? Because we're fast paced. We're on the East Coast. Are they lower in like the main quest? Yeah, I don't know. I actually, I don't know. We share our CLABSI rates with our CHA peers, our Children's Hospital Association peers, and really everybody is having a problem right now in pediatrics. So if one of the nurses or if a nurse has a passion to get involved with CLABSI, how can they do that? A number of ways. Um, we are lucky enough to have unit-based infection prevention nurses in various areas of the hospital. Some units have more dedicated time for that role than others, but they are a great resource for unit-based staff to bring concerns forward, to ask questions. And I would definitely encourage any nurse who's interested in infection control to see if there's an infection control committee on their unit. A lot of individual units do have infection control committees that are run by that unit-based nurse or by the QI lead for the unit or by the unit leadership and, you know, volunteer to be on that committee and, um, you know, learn more about what is happening locally on your unit for special projects. Anything else you can think of, Jen? We also are expanding our infection prevention program. So we've grown the program from having four infection preventionists to 12. And so we are in more spaces doing more rounding at the front line. Anybody can come up to us and talk to us at any time. K-cards are a perfect opportunity to ask other questions that don't pertain to central lines or CLABSI prevention. We're always willing to help answer questions, find resources, et cetera. But anybody who has a passion for infection prevention or CLABSI prevention, we'd be happy to be engaged. I don't know if, Paula, you want to talk about the fellowship a little bit. Yeah, sure. So as our department has grown, we've identified a need to share some of our special expertise outside of our department. So I last year developed an infection prevention fellowship as a pilot. Um, I engaged one of our unit-based infection prevention nurses in the MICU, and we did an eight-week program. I, I designed content for her to review every week with some activities that she would do on her own. And then we met every week and went over the content for the week, went over the activities, case studies, you know, different exercises. And it just gave her more background and more tools, I think, to, you know, go out to her own unit and, you know, be that resource for the frontline staff. And it went really well. We enjoyed it. And we'd love to expand that to other units. It, you know, it's a little challenging because the person who participates needs to have some dedicated time to do the work every week. But if we can get people to get, you know, leadership support from their area, we would love to do more of that. Or, you know, maybe design some short sessions that we could do via Zoom for you know, people who want to log on and learn more about an infection control topic. So Paula, should they reach out to you directly if they have questions? Sure. Paula.conrad at Children's Harvard EDU. 
Sounds like a wonderful program. How many nurses in total are you thinking to recruit? I mean, we did just the one nurse to pilot it and it's labor intensive. So it would probably be something we would do on a smaller scale initially. I would love to see several people be able to go through it in the course of a year. Or if we did, you know, more like courses of some sort or, you know, sessions, it could be much more widely available. Mm-hmm. Still um, thinking about it, learning about it, thinking about what would be best. And, and you know, it's hard for nurses to get time away from their patients and the bedside too. So, still, yeah. So who knows? But thinking forward, thinking ahead. Sounds like a great opportunity. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I do want to thank you both for joining us today and for sharing your expertise, your wisdom, and your humor too. <laughs> this has been a great podcast. And we look forward to hearing more about our CLABSI prevention success in the future. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. And um, we really hope that it's just one more way for people to learn about this important issue. You know, we want everybody to be as passionate about CLABSI prevention as us. So hopefully we have some new advocates, new voices to speak up for CLABSI prevention. So thank you very much. This podcast is sponsored by the Innovation Digital Health Accelerator, Boston Children's Hospital, with support from the emergency department and our inpatient medicine programs. Until next time, thank you for listening to the Small Talk Podcast.